Inspiration can come from anywhere. Just ask Robert Egger. On a cold rainy night in 1980s Washington, D.C., Robert was riding in a food truck operated by a local church. He was only there because he and his future wife had agreed to volunteer in exchange for getting married at the church. He was nervous and wanted to get it over with, but what he saw that night changed his life. First, he learned the church bought the food from a grocery store instead of using the free good food thrown away each night by the catering industry. Next, when the food truck pulled in front of the White House, Robert was surprised by the long line of people already waiting. What if they could reduce that line by training them for the many open restaurant jobs? That's when the idea for DC Central Kitchen was born. It'd be a place where he could feed more people better food for less money and give them lifelong job skills. This is Rich McKay of Workday. Today on the Workday Podcast, we're talking with Robert Egger, the founder of the DC Central Kitchen and LA Kitchen, and a founding board member of the World Central Kitchen with Chef Jose Andres. Robert is an award-winning author and speaker, and he is a tireless advocate for the nonprofit sector. Robert, it's great to have you here today on the podcast. Oh, right on, dude. It's an honor to be here. So could you share why you first got involved with volunteering uh, at nonprofits and then actually starting a nonprofit? You know, it's kind of that proverbial, was there an aha moment too, as you transition from volunteering to starting a nonprofit? Well, you know, dude, I just wanted to get married. Uh, and there was this, there was this, you know, I ran nightclubs and that was my chosen path. You know, I, I really, I, I had a dream of opening the greatest nightclub in the world and spent my twenties and actually my late teens, I didn't go to college. I, I was very focused on what I wanted to do, but uh, I, I met uh, a, a woman walked in my, my wife, Claudia walked into a little bar I was working at. And as I like to say, ordered a drink and stole my heart. And, uh, you know, we just wanted to get married. And there was this little church I walked by on my way home from a nightclub in Georgetown in Washington, D.C., where we lived. And we went in, you know, because we were young and we didn't have any money. And uh, and they were they were willing to do it for a very affordable rate. But the the priest there uh, asked if we would be willing to volunteer one night to go out on this food truck that that rode around D.C. with meals that were prepared by parishioners. And along with the synagogue and, and four of the five other churches, they took turns every night going out. It was called the Great Patrol, as in steam grate. So anyway, dude, that's all I, I just want is like, okay, cool, man, I'll do that. You know, if, if you're going to marry us for cheap and all I got to do is go out and serve people on the street, I'll do that. But it was interesting because I went out just trying to get it over with and actually a little bit nervous. But I, I had two little interesting things going on. You know, it's A, I asked where the food came from that night. And it had been purchased at a very expensive grocery store right up the street in Georgetown. And here I was working in an industry and many of my friends working in catering uh, in the mid 80s. Um, and we threw away food every night. And I thought, wow, man, they're they're buying food. And, you know, their chili was fine. But I'm thinking, dude, they're throwing away insane food all over the city every night. So I'm just thinking about that. But then we pulled up in front of the White House. And here was this long line of people out in front of the White House, in front of the World Bank, uh, out by the American Red Cross, all over the kind of downtown area of DC. And it was raining that night and we started serving people. And this really interesting kind of thing hit me, which is I was up in the warm truck kind of getting cred for serving people. And here were people outside in the rain waiting in line for another truck full of well-intended volunteers to come out and feed the poor. 
And I was looking at that. And on the way home, I said to, you know, my fiance, now my wife of almost 40 years, uh, Claudia, I said, you know, this is nuts. I mean, again, there's food all over this town, but all these restaurants have tons of jobs. I met so many people who didn't seem uh, like they couldn't work. I wonder what it'd be like if we could collect all that food and bring it to a central kitchen and start a cooking school for the homeless. And that way you could feed more people better food for less money, but also shorten the line by the way you serve it, you know? And that's what really was the moment because what I encountered that night was a very traditional charitable model, which was built on what I like to say is more the redemption of the giver, when in my opinion, it should have been more about the liberation of the receiver. So I started the DC Central Kitchen, to be honest with you, my brother, because no one else would. I didn't tend to start or nor lead a program. I just wanted to propose to the different organizations that were already doing this a more efficient way in a more just way for them to serve the community, but no one would do it. And I think this is the mark of many entrepreneurs. You see an idea that you think is eminently practical, but it's either hasn't been done or it's addressing the issue that hasn't been revealed yet, or for a variety of reasons, the, 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 you know, your contemporaries, your peers don't see it. And you end up starting it yourself. And that's pretty much the story of how I started the DC Central Kitchen. Interesting enough, though, with a show person's flair, uh, I opened up on George Bush Sr.'s inauguration, getting food from uh, the parties that night. And that ushered in not only the DC Kitchen, but because what media outlet in the world could resist food being donated from the, the inauguration and going to poor people the next day? So I was able to not only launch my business, but kind of launch a revolution of sorts in that a lot of people saw the news and thought, dang, we have a ton of food being thrown away in our town too. Maybe we should start something similar. And that began not only the DC Kitchen, but a fascinating movement that followed up. Yeah. And that, I guess, my question for that would be how do people keep that creative and innovative mindset, even if they've been in the business or nonprofit industry for 20 years? You know, instead of being comfortable, they keep looking for a better way uh, to do things. Well, I think a lot of people, I know I was definitely constantly driven by innovation. I wanted to innovate. And I'll be honest with you, dude, you know, um, I came in a little bit loaded for bear against the nonprofit sector because I was born to open the greatest nightclub in the world. And I was, you know, kind of derailed because none of the nonprofit people I, I kind of went to and said, hey, dudes, I got this great idea. Here's how you can feed more people, better food, less money, blah, blah, blah. And no one, no one would do it. In fact, not only would they not do it, but they actually tried to shoot it down. So part of me really wanted to constantly challenge and monkey wrench the traditions of charity, I admire, uh, and I grew up admiring the intent of, of charity, but I, I found that so much of what I encountered had either A, been kind of calcified around this redemption of the giver model, and there's nothing wrong with redemption, dude. I need it as much as anybody else, just not at the expense of another human. Uh, you know, my models were always, let's rise together. But like I said, the, the further I got out into the broader field, the first anti-hunger work, and then broader human services work, and then the broader nonprofit sector, I encountered, you know, kind of consistent um, barriers to innovation or willful ignorance. That's probably too strong a word, but, you know, a willful kind of head in the sand when it comes to seeing what's coming around the bend. So, for example, um, early on, um, not knowing much about the issue, I assumed the people who were 
hungry in America were primarily the homeless men and women I encountered that night. I had no idea about how many working families struggled. I had no idea how many elders struggled. Uh, and as the job training program um, really blossomed and we became really good, uh, in fact, today is the 127th graduating class at DC Central Kitchen. Oh, kind wow. Congrats. But it was interesting because, for example, I was always trying to figure out who was next in line to be hungry and who was next in line to be in need of a job. So, you know, we were always trying to say to the broader network, either those who had built kitchens similar to ours, who looked to us for some leadership, or as I began to speak more and more about the broader issues, you know, who was next. And so, for example, whether it was kind of anticipating the issues of crack cocaine and, and different drugs as they came and the barriers, men and women who were, this wasn't your mother's heroin or your father's alcohol. I mean, crack meth, these things are very insidious drugs and, and they're not, you know, the kind of clean and sober um, things that I was used to helping people through were very much more difficult for people who were coming out of a, a, a meth or a uh, crack background or men and women are coming home from long-term prison. You know, that was a big trend that you could see coming a million miles away and trying to suggest to a generation of job training folks, look, you're going to have to tailor your job training but not only that, you're going to have to anticipate that a lot of these men and women are going to struggle to get jobs because now in the 1990s, suddenly there were computerized um, applications, which meant if someone who went through your program who had demonstrated some, you know, just tremendous focus and drive and made it through, oftentimes the first thing they had finished in their entire life, then they went out to get a job really excited about this new life only to run into a computer that would spit out your application if you check the box that said, I have a felony, um, which meant that, you know, part of that's what led us very early to adapt what became known as social enterprise. We call it righteous enterprise when we started them in the early 90s. But this idea of saying, dudes, what's the incentive for a business in a capitalist world to hire a felon, uh, to be aware and to maybe give them a little bit of slack as they adjust? or to pay a wage that might make up for somebody's 10, 15, 20 years away where they didn't get any social security or any savings. So these are the kind of things that I felt the nonprofit sector was ideal. You know, that idea of trying to not only anticipate change, but being a, an honest and open originator who shared through open source any knowledge we gained, uh, but then also a very early social entrepreneur that said, let's start our own businesses, employ people and demonstrate that if a nonprofit can, for example, in our world, uh, the DC Central Kitchen, let's buy local food from farmers, let's pay a decent wage, and let's reinvest all our profit back into the nonprofit, which makes us less dependent on the fickle nature of philanthropy, and frankly, uh, gives us a little bit more freedom to speak truth to power when needed. Yeah, that's that's really fantastic. Thanks for sharing all that. I guess a related question I have is for getting the most out of a nonprofit. So how do you successfully work with a board of directors? How does like a nonprofit leader work with their board of directors? Um, do you recommend uh, ways they can collaborate with the board to achieve their mutual goals? Yeah. You know, dude, I must admit, I always bumped heads because I think boards are probably one of the most misunderstood parts of the nonprofit sector. We assume that their job and their job is frankly focused on one overarching issue, which is fiduciary responsibility. It's their job to make sure that work with the CEO 
and management to develop a, a plan for the year and a budget and then hold them accountable to meet those goals, but not to get into the day-to-day management of the organization. But I think many boards, because of the way they're structured with this kind of rudimentary sense of you're going to come on and you're going to be a board member for a three-year, two, three-year term back-to-back. And unless you do something egregious that the rest of the board votes you out, which is super rare, um, you're there. And that means that a CEO can be stuck with a non kind of either a a non-performing or actually a destructive board member for six miserable years. So one of the things I've been proposing to colleagues is what I call a a project-driven board term, that instead of a one-year, two-year, three-year term, you basically build it around a project that you want that specific board member to help you achieve. That way, when you come to a board meeting, instead of the traditional model where a staff would work diligently to prepare a report that, frankly, probably 50 to 60% of the board members don't even read before the board meeting. And then they try and find some fault in something you've done because they think that's their job. This model would make board members more um, responsible to one another, that they would, in effect, have to report out to the board how they've helped the CEO achieve the vision or the project that they were specifically brought on for their skills or their talents. And I think that would be a liberating kind of a a way to look at a potential board relationship in the future versus, I think, again, this kind of going back to, I think, the theme we encountered earlier, which is the kind of tyranny of routine that I think stifles the creativity we need in the sector right now. Excellent. Great advice. Do you have any advice for generating income? Like, you know, what should nonprofits do to build revenue to help achieve their missions? Oh, dude, I, I think social enterprise is like economic Buddhism. It's the, the kind of middle path between .com and .org uh, that most communities don't even know exist. In fact, you know what is something frightening, dude, about the broader structure of nonprofits as we get into this next phase of our conversation? If you were to walk down the street of any university town and stop 10 people and say, what's a good nonprofit? Seven or eight would be, uh, you know, I'm not really sure. One or two, it looked like they knew, but were afraid to answer for fear of being wrong. And one with great enthusiasm would say, oh, dudes, it's the one with the lowest administrative overhead. And they would all nod. Yet here is a sector that is the third biggest employer in America with over $4 trillion in assets and a wide variety of other metrics that we can get to later. Yet that's the depth of knowledge. I mean, people can tell you what's a good dry cleaner, but they can't tell you what a good nonprofit is. And that's kind of frightening when you think about the amount of money. You know, annually, Americans give almost $400 billion to charity. Um, yet, again, what you have is, is a group of people that includes elected leaders who oftentimes don't understand even the basic rudimentary work nonprofits do, let alone the dynamic opportunities they could, they could have if they embrace things like social enterprise, which is, in effect, saying, I don't want to be dependent upon random donations. Uh, As much as I honor all donations I get, I'd like to be a little bit more liberated uh, so that in effect, I might be able to pay our employees a better wage, even retirement for some of our employees. Because, you know, there is no retirement plan for most nonprofits. And heavens, there's no uh, grants for things like a retirement plan. So um, anyway, but you know what I looked at is, is, there's two kind of, there, in my business, you can do catering. Uh, you can do kind of uh, a food service, like a food truck or a cafe, or you can do contracts. 
I like contracts. The money's there. You say to me, Robert, I want to contract with you to provide lunch every day for my team of 20 people. So will you deliver 20 meals every day at lunch? And I say, yes, that means every day when I drop off those sandwiches, I'm not hoping someone comes in and buys them. You're going to pay me because we have a contract. Uh, And whether all 20 people eat is not my concern because you paid me for 20 meals. That's our contract. I like contracts. They're good business. So that can be school food, which is what the DC Central Kitchen has done for the better part of 10, 15 years now. Uh, I went out to Los Angeles to be part of pioneering what a senior meal contract could look like uh, for, in effect, uh, an alternative to Meals on Wheels. Um, But there's a lot of contracts like that that every city, every state has. So for a lot of the people in your audience who might be thinking about it, that's the question I oftentimes ask when people want to talk about revenue is you can you can have the best product in the world. But my first question is, who's your customer? Because if you don't have a dedicated customer, you don't know where somebody's where you're going to find that person who's going to buy it. That means you're sitting on debt. You know, you paid up front for the goods and services you paid for the staff, the wages, all that stuff. And you're hoping somebody buys the product so you make your money back. That's the number one question. It doesn't matter how great your product is. It's how good your potential customers are. Actually, I think, you know, you touched on this a little bit, but so how can nonprofits work with elected officials? That's just getting their ear, building a relationship, selling their message, because that seems to be such a critical relationship. Dude, I love working with the pro. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about how, how quick you're, you're, we're, we're kind of rolling with this, because that's exactly, that's probably one of the greatest barriers to innovation within the nonprofit sector is, uh, is a generation almost to a person of mayors, in particular mayors who don't really truly understand uh, the role that nonprofits play in generating income for their town. Like, uh, you know, for example, uh, California, nonprofits bring about $40 billion a year into the state from outside the state. Now, again, I, I would pretty much guarantee you that if you walked up to Gavin Newsom one day before this podcast came out and said, hey, you know, Governor Newsom, how much do nonprofits bring into the state? He wouldn't know. In fact, if you ask most mayors, how much do nonprofits bring into your city from outside to create jobs, to generate the, the kind of platform in which profit is generated? In fact, I'll tell you, I say to virtually every mayor if I ever talk to is, look, you know, there's no profits without nonprofits. You know, if your town doesn't have arts and culture, communities of faith, healthcare, education, clean air, clean water, ex parks and rec, all those kind of things that are traditionally run by nonprofits, you can't attract business. You can't attract families to put down roots. Uh, You can't attract new business. So, you know, what we need, I think, in America is a much more mature economic understanding about this this symbiotic relationship between for-profit and nonprofit. But going back to, if I'm a small town mayor and I'm struggling and I got a town full of old people, um, I've got a, a lot of young people that are leaving town and never coming back. Um, I've got a lot of things I got to deal with. The last thing I want is a big corporation coming in and it, taking money out of the town and exporting it to um, uh, support external shareholders. You know, basically saying, "Hey, look, I love your town and I, I'm happy to be here, but I have no interest here. I'm just making money here, and I'm taking the money and leaving." Nonprofits or social businesses, we don't do that. We don't have shareholders. Um, and, you know, all we are ob- obliged to do when we generate revenue is reinvest it back in the nonprofit. 
just so you know, and I might have kind of skated over this earlier. Uh, any kind of any time a nonprofit makes money, it has to be mission related. I mean, I can't just start a random uh, a used car lot, for example, and call it a nonprofit. It has to be somehow related to what the larger mission of my nonprofit organization is. So, as you can uh, uh, see, like the DC Central Kitchen, which prepared meals and trained men and women for jobs, for us to start a food business that employed graduates and continued with that broader mission of healthy meals and public health, that's a very easy, obvious kind of uh, uh, example to use. But again, if I'm a small town mayor and you tell me there's a business out there that they their model is to buy local, pay good wages, reinvest profit, man, my attitude is sign me up. Where do I, how do I help them, you know, get the kind of resources they need to grow? And one of those resources would be contracts. And that can be anywhere from building houses to um, solid waste, to food contracts, uh, to, you know, you pick your service, man. It's just another version of business, but I think a better business. Uh, excellent. And somewhat related. So how do nonprofits own their collective power then? How can they work together or any other facet of that question? You know, dude, I, it's funny. I love the word merger. Now, you know, many nonprofits hate that word because they think immediately what I'm saying is, you know, we're kind of a weak, anemic sector, even though we got all these resources. Robert's talking about, you know, oh, I got to close and, and partner and become, you know, two becomes one. And it's like, well, you know, that's not an illogical discussion, but, you know, that's frankly, oftentimes an example of the, the kind of negative mindset we have about ourselves. So to take it a step further, it might be a bunch of nonprofits saying, why don't we merge our backroom services and share an HR department or an insurance policy so that we don't, instead of all of us having HR, why don't we share one? You know, another version might say, wow, um, we do a lot of business in this town. We generate you know, millions and in some towns, billions of dollars of income. Why don't we merge our banking business? Not our money, but our business. And why don't we go to banks and say, if you want our collective business, and that might represent, you know, one billion, two billion. In some cities like Washington, DC, where you're talking about local, national, and international nonprofits, we're talking about tens of billions of dollars potentially in banking. Why don't we merge that business and get a great deal and then potentially advocate for access to capital, access to credit, which we rarely get, unlike traditional for-profit businesses. But last but not least, I would challenge the nonprofit sector to merge our votes and start to say to elected officials, look, you know, we don't expect you to say, you know, I, I love nonprofits and you all are going to be on easy street. But my, my goodness, if, if we could find a candidate who said, I see you, I respect the work you do. I'd like to help you evolve and be stronger and better and do better services to create more jobs. And I'll help you get there. I'd like your vote. That idea of us trying to really, you know, kind of hold out, for lack of a better phrase, or at least advocate and start to say to candidates, and I've done this before, where, you know, when it comes to election time and you stand up at debates and say, our sector represents, we're the third biggest employer, 14 million vote voters, 4 billion, 400 billion in annual revenue, 60 million volunteers, and you can't make profit in a town without us. What's your vision and how do you including us in your plans for the future? Now, to be honest with you, dude, if I'm a candidate and if I or if I'm another voter sitting next to somebody like me who says that and I suddenly think to myself, dang, I didn't know that. And dang, that's a really good question. 
I mean, you know, if you want to be mayor or governor and you don't have a plan for your third biggest employer or a source of that much human energy, you don't really even know the town you want to lead. So I think that's a pretty legitimate way we could own our power. Yeah. And I love that idea, that mergering for shared work, right? I think one of the things I, I hear is like when whatever the industry, like, they, you know, a company starts, they maybe start to do their first few hires, they start to grow. Oh, we need an HR department now, or we need at least some uh, HR person or service. And I can see how if you could start working with other nonprofits, you are able to solve your challenge quicker, you're more efficient. They can help you answer your questions so you can focus on the mission versus all the administrative tasks. Right. Totally, dude. Well, look at it this way. Say you and I are uh, competing dry cleaners across the street. And man, you know, um, every day I watch by and I see Rich's dry cleaning. And man, I, I hate Rich. Man, I, I want <laughs> Rich's clothes. Now, why can't anybody see how, how bad Rich's is dry cleaning? You know, and you're doing the same thing. Yet, if somebody comes in town or into the state or the state house or even federal government wants to regulate dry cleaning or small business in a way that might really jeopardize our each of our dry cleaners, we might not drive down to the Board of Trade together, but we have enough sense to go down to the Board of Trade and advocate on behalf of our shared business culture or our, you know, our, our part of the sector. We can fight another day, but we put aside our differences on strategic days in which we need to advocate for something that benefits uh, or or would do harm to each of us. And that's another thing I, I wish nonprofits would think about when it comes to merger. You know, how do you, we, we compete, you know, with each other. Um, and I think that the more we could find those strategic moments of alignment, uh, the stronger and more uh, resourceful we'd be in the long run. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and so the final question, and it's what I always uh, like to ask my guests, is really about you know future trends. Like what trends, like good or bad, uh, do you think are going to impact nonprofits in 2023 and beyond? And how can they better uh, prepare or deal with these trends? Well, you know, uh, Rich, I might have mentioned it earlier. Um, and by the way, I'm sure I'd love your dry cleaner if you had one. Uh, <laughs> I would do a good job. I would, would do a very good job. I mean, it'd be green dry cleaner. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there's two <laughs> things I tell people to watch out for. And you know, I'm a big believer in probability. You know, it's very difficult to predict the future, but probability gets you close. So, for example, aging in America is a profound issue. And probability is women outlive men, women outnumber men, which means the, the majority of our elders will be women who, for a wide variety of reasons, sexism being at the very top, aren't going to have as much resources as men might have, whether it's because they didn't get paid enough or because those years where they might have been earning Social Security were spent taking care of a family. We haven't figured out how to reward women for that work by getting Social Security if they had gone to work. So aging is a profound issue. Every single morning, every single morning, 10,000 people wake up 70. Uh, and there's no plan because we have ageism. Uh, it's, it's a lot like mental health. People just don't want to talk about getting old, death and dying. Um, so we don't. And that's left us in a place where we continue to shun our elders and not really innovate to find ways in which we can include and keep people living independently and staying productive as long as possible, which quite honestly, Rich, is economics 101. That has to happen. So for mayors or governors or presidents who stop and say, you know, if you're old in America, you're, you know, your best days are might be behind you, but you still have a role to play as an equal and imperative member of our democracy and our society. But the other thing that's going to really, I think, 
profoundly affect. And I know it's 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 controversial, but I think the decisions about women's health is going to be profound because in states in which women won't have the same access to healthcare as they might have last month, um, there is going to be a predictable spike in child poverty. And if you look at things like food banks uh, and pantries that struggle, struggle mightily to meet the need now, what happens when you add on potentially you know, tens of thousands of new infants being cared for by working women who already might have two or three kids? Um, so I, I just think that, or it's going to be in states like where I live in New Mexico that uh, protects a woman's right uh, to her health, right, her health uh, autonomy where you're gonna see um, small nonprofits overwhelmed by people who might hear me from other states uh, seeking advantage, coming to take advantage of some of the uh, options we provide women here. It goes back to our discussion earlier about the way very few elected people really understand what we do and take quite frankly our work for granted. So what you hear people saying is, oh, well, the churches will do it or the nonprofits will do it. And they're already kind of cynically getting ready to exploit um, our beloved hearts, if you will, and the and the hearts of our volunteers and donors who don't want to see somebody go hungry, who don't want to see an elder out of sleeping in their car, you know. So again, I, I think the question becomes: Do we continue to try and address this with with charity, as inten- well intended as it is, or do we get a little bit more focused, a little bit more aligned, and dare I say, a little bit more diabolical in the way we choose to um, meet the need today? and address, hopefully, uh, decreasing demand tomorrow. Robert, it's, it's been a real pleasure talking with you today. Um, and, and, and thank you so much for spending the time answering questions and really providing your insights into the nonprofit industry. Well, right on, Rich. It's been a pleasure working with you. And uh, like I said, anybody who wants to know where the best dry cleaning in town, it's Rich's dry cleaning. <laughs> 100%. And I will recommend Robert's dry cleaning, too. We'll build each other both up together. There you go. Now, yeah. that's how it's done, brother. That is how it's done. 100%. All right, thank you. Okay, man. Thank you for listening to our conversation about nonprofits with Robert Egger. Be sure to follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And remember, you can find our entire catalog at workday.com slash podcasts. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you have a great workday.